Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host, Ash Saka. And the reason why you've been seeing so much of me lately is that everyone's ill, but I'm the illest. Joining me is the similarly sick Sean Fay. Sean, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Ash. I'm not just sick, I am sickening, as the drag queens have it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, at least that's a bit more dignified than my Eric B and Rakim era slang, um, which Fox didn't understand when I put it in the script earlier. Coming up on tonight's show, Suella Braverman's humiliating defeat in the courts over Rwanda deportations, a shocking new report into spy cops monitoring activists, and Navarra Media's newest arrival on the podcasting scene. Be honest with me now, are you going to be listening to Ed Balls and George Osborne on Austerity FM? Let's go to our first story. In October last year, Suella Braverman said this. I would love to be having a, a front page of the Telegraph yeah. with a, fly, a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. That's my dream. It's when my will obsession. that happen? Well, now her dream, her obsession, seems further away than ever. And that's because the Court of Appeal has ruled that Suella Braverman's Rwanda plan is unlawful. That ruling overturns a previous judgment by the High Court in favour of Braverman last December. And the issue is now expected to go up to the Supreme Court. So why did the Court of Appeal find the Rwanda policy to fall foul of the law? Well, it turns out the judges were not convinced Rwanda is a genuinely safe country to send asylum seekers. Lord Chief Justice Burnett explained the decision. The decision of the majority, the master of the roles, Sir Geoffrey Voss, and Lord Justice Underhill, the Vice President of the Court of Appeal Civil Division, is that the deficiencies in the asylum system in Rwanda are such that there are substantial grounds for believing that there is a real risk that persons sent to Rwanda will be returned to their home countries where they faced persecution or other inhumane treatment when in fact they have a good claim for asylum. In that sense, Rwanda is not a safe third country. That conclusion is founded on the evidence which was before the High Court that Rwanda's system for deciding asylum claims was, in the period up to the conclusion of the Rwanda agreement, inadequate. The court is unanimous in accepting that the assurances given by the Rwandan government were made in good faith and were intended to address any defects in the asylum process. However, the majority believes that the evidence does not establish that the necessary changes had by then been reliably effected. So the judges have ruled that the Rwandan asylum system, as it operated at the time of the agreement, could not ensure that people would not be sent to unsafe countries. Therefore, outsourcing the UK's asylum decision-making to Rwanda would not be within the law. Suella Braverman expressed her disappointment at the decision. The decision today, as I've said, is disappointing. We respectfully disagree with the, the court judgment. Um, but it's important to note that there are some elements upon which we were successful in the decision um, and that actually Rwanda, we believe, is a safe country. We have a groundbreaking world-leading partnership with Rwanda. I've been to Rwanda very recently. I've seen the arrangements in place. There are robust assurances. There is independent monitoring. Uh, Rwanda has an extensive track record of supporting 100,000 migrants and refugees. So there are good grounds uh, for progressing with this policy, and I have every confidence in it. And this was Keir Starmer's response to the ruling. 
Labour's got a plan to deal with the boats and stop the boats, and that is to go after the criminal gangs that are running this vile trade and also to process the asylum claims. The government has broken the system. Only 1% of those arrived by small boats have had their claims processed. And so the government's got no plan. It's got a gimmick, which is the Rwanda scheme, a gimmick um, which has already cost the taxpayer £140 million and nobody's been removed. And now we know from the court judgment this morning that the government didn't even do the basics to make sure that it was fit for purpose. So we have to get a grip. Labour's got a grip. We've got a plan to deal with this. The government's got absolutely no plan, no clue. I'm joined now by Sheila Reynolds, Head of Advocacy at Freedom From Torture, one of the groups behind the legal challenge. Sheila, what law has the Rwanda plan fallen foul of? It's been found by the Court of Appeal uh, that Rwanda, as you said, is not a safe third country. And that's because there is a very real risk that refugees sent to Rwanda under this scheme Um, would face the possible return from Rwanda to the country of persecution. And that uh, would breach Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Do you think that this decision might just spur the Tories to try and leave the European Convention on Human Rights? Yeah, I mean, look, there is a very real risk of, well, I mean, there's very real threats of that. And you've heard it even today in the House of Commons when Suella was giving her statement on the appeal court judgment. But to be honest, I don't think there really is much appetite for that, even on the conservative side. I mean, look, doing that would put us in the company of Putin's Russia and Belarus. Like, it's not a group that we want to be a member of, right? Like, and I think these suggestions really do kind of expose what the government is trying to do through this scheme and through the reforms that they're trying to bring in through the illegal migration bill, which is to attack the universality of human rights, the idea that human rights are for all of us, by trying to kind of carve out some exceptions to, to name some categories of people who, who shouldn't, who we're supposed to believe shouldn't um, deserve protection under, under international human rights law. And that's a really terrifying prospect. And I think it's one that that for a lot of conservatives is is really uncomfortable. And we heard them last night in the House of Lords, conservative peers opposing and, and, and defeating the government by supporting amendments that would uh, ensure compliance with international law of the provisions that were within the illegal migration bill. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about how popular the idea of leaving the ECHR is amongst the conservatives. So Ella Braverman has said that the Court of Appeal sided with the government on a number of issues. What what were they? So while the court found that Rwanda itself was not a safe third country, it did not make a statement that removal in principle to a safe third country is unlawful. And this is because in uh, in international law, in, re- in refugee law, there is a provision that allows states to remove individuals to a safe third country uh, for their asylum claim to be heard. But there are some really, really um, strict constraints around how that can be used. And the reason is that the, the, the spirit in which those provisions were drafted was the spirit of solidarity and responsibility sharing. It was supposed to be about states supporting other states to meet this international, this global 
responsibility for ensuring that people could access protection. So one of the really key constraints that applies to any safe third country provisions has to be that removal to that safe third country would uh, would not deny someone access to um, an assessment of their asylum, a procedure that would assess their asylum claim in a manner which is compliant with international law, with the Refugee Convention. I think that's where this Rwanda scheme really falls, because the court determined that Rwanda is not a safe third country. It is not a country which uh, to which we could send refugees and they would have their asylum claim heard in compliance with the Refugee Convention. So you've got this judgment being made on the basis that Rwanda isn't a safe third country, but the Court of Appeal hasn't ruled against definitively the principle of deportation to a safe third country. That being the case, what are the chances then that the government might succeed when they take it to the Supreme Court? I wouldn't want to preempt the judgment of the Supreme Court. And I think you know that we still have everything to play for here. I think even where the the Court of Appeal um, dismissed certain grounds. I think they made some really helpful comments about, for example, um, the flexibility that would be required in any uh, removal scheme to enable individuals to be able to um, make a, a challenge to their to the decision to remove them. And this was one of the grounds that we intervened on. Our experience of working with survivors of torture has shown us that they really struggle in these kind of breakneck speed processes where they have little or no access to legal advice or representation. You know, it, it's difficult for someone who's experienced trauma to be able to talk about it in that kind of environment. And so it, it is helpful that there are elements within the judgment that that have they've heard that the judges have heard what we've put forward and what asylum aid, which was the uh, the NGO claimant in um, in the appeal, what they were saying about the risk of unfairness in the way that, that such a procedure would run. And I would expect that when an appeal is taken to the Supreme Court, that some of those issues will be picked up again and explored further. I'm really glad you mentioned it, because one of the things that struck me is what's going to be happening to asylum seekers here in the UK while this goes through the courts? Are they just in limbo now? They're not getting their claims processed, but it's also unclear about whether they'll be processed in a safe third country. Yeah, I mean, limbo is the is the right word. I mean, there's, there's just thousands and thousands of people who are being held in a system and refused any, uh, refused admission to the UK's asylum system, refused any fair hearing or consideration of their asylum claim. And they're just waiting. And we've seen, we've all seen the stats around the backlog. It's it's shocking and it's growing. Um, and yeah, they are, they don't know what's going to happen with their asylum claim. They don't know if uh, the government will succeed in getting a flight onto the tarmac and they're facing, um, you know, at, at the moment's notice, the possibility of being removed somewhere like Rwanda. And that's terrifying. I mean, our clients tell us every day in the clinical sessions that we do with them about the the terror they feel at the prospect of being removed somewhere like Rwanda. Um, and, you know, that the, the human cost of that is, is, is unimaginable alongside, you know, everybody's been talking about the financial cost of keeping people in this limbo, the cost of hotels, but the human cost of holding people in that state of paralysis for years on end is it's shameful. It, it, it really is unethical. It really is immoral. Sheila Reynolds, thank you so much for joining me. So 
Sean, this is going to become Suella Braverman versus the Supreme Court and even Suella Braverman versus the European Convention on Human Rights. Isn't this the kind of political fight that the Tories are quite happy to have? I think one of the uh, tricky things about this entire uh, Rwanda plan is that the Tories have the potential to benefit from it no matter what happens. And in a case such as this, it helps certainly optically and in terms of the theatre of a certain kind of politics, this idea of um, crusading against human rights law, something that the Tories are very keen to do, the idea that um, the will of the government, and often it's expressed as the will of the people, and that's often you know considered to be the white citizen, um, the will of the people is being quashed by activist judges, by um, a, a legal elite. Uh, and that can be quite a useful idea, I think, for the Tories who, who themselves constitute an elite to, um, to be able to appoint and look and, and say, look, um, we're being impeded here from doing something. And I think it's worth saying, too, that what is worrying is regardless of what happens on the legal front is one uh the law has its own limitations as was just discussed there um removal to a third country on principle is not actually something that's been ruled to be unlawful and i think what's also worth saying there is i i think the fact that keir starmer was referring to this disgusting policy as a gimmick is also a cause for concern about the another point on which the tories win is having shifted the the realm of acceptable discourse, the Overton window, to a point where this is now just being discussed as a gimmick um, in mainstream politics rather than a sort of heinous breach of human dignity as well as human rights, according to the law. I wanted to explore that a little bit more because it seems to me that Labour's objections to the Tories' asylum policies really boil down to it's not going to work. It's not being competently administered. Um, do you think that that's the only thing that they really have the room for, considering the climate of media coverage and so forth? Or is it that they're unwilling to go further? No, I think I think there's been a decision at the highest levels of the Labour Party about strategy coming up to the next general election, that rather than take a stand on um, this issue, this this I don't know, this imagery of migrants on small boats, which is being used in a very, very cynical way by the Tories, rather than challenging that at the root, is to actually accept it uh, and um, and to try and harness, frankly, the kind of racist forces in public life that, that underscore such a policy, to try and harness those just simply for Labour's benefit by, yeah, as you say, talking about the language of competency. Um, in fact, the way that they're sort of slamming the Tories is often being like, you know, they're not actually um, uh, planning uh, draconian immigration policies um, sufficiently well, rather than like immigration policy itself and our approach to it and the conversation around it in this country is um, extremely hostile to, as I say, human dignity. Let's move on to our next story. An inquiry into more than 50 years of undercover policing released a new report today, and its interim conclusions were damning. Here's a summary from the BBC. The use of undercover policing tactics from the 1960s onwards was not justified, and the unit should have been disbanded early on, a report says. 
ex-senior judge Sir John Mitting said most groups infiltrated by the special demonstration squad posed no threat. His report for the undercover policing inquiry details such tactics such as forming sexual relationships and using the names of dead children for cover. The end did not justify the means, the report concludes. This report is the first of a series due to be released over the next three years by the Mitting Inquiry. It identifies four major areas of concern in how the Special Demonstration Squad, a group of metropolitan police officers dedicated to the monitoring of left-wing political organizations and protest groups, conducted their operations between the years 1968 and 1982. The first was that undercover officers regularly formed close personal friendships with people in the political groups that they were spying on. In Mitting's words, this intrusion into the lives of many hundreds of people in this era required cogent justification before it should have been contemplated as a police tactic. A further report will look at undercover cops tricking people into sexual relationships. The second area of concern is about access to the homes of people being monitored without their knowledge by undercover police officers. According to Mitting, police officers entering people's homes while deceiving them about their true identities could make them trespassers. A third major question for the Metropolitan Police was that undercover officers took up roles of responsibility within the groups that they infiltrated. The report says this. As Trevor Butler stated, they were encouraged to take positions such as branch treasurer or membership secretary that improved the quality of the information they could obtain, but not those which involved direction setting and incitement. Even the former routinely involved the gathering and distribution of intelligence about facts such as bank details protected by the law relating to confidential information. When undercover officers achieved positions in the central office of the SWP and direction-setting positions in its right-to-work marches or equivalent roles at branch level, they were helping to organise political activity, which was either lawful or was unlawful because it posed a threat to public order. And finally, the interim report raises criticisms of officers appropriating the names of deceased children. They did so in the belief that by adopting real identities, they'd be harder to unmask as police spies and kept this a secret for fear of public condemnation and being shut down. Mitting also reports that police officers never consulted their superiors on this practice because they assumed that nobody would ever find out anyway. So who did the special demonstration squad target? Was it the violent far right who had targeted ethnic minorities and activists across the UK? No, it was socialists, trade unionists, anti-apartheid campaigners and others on the left. And people's lives were ruined. The inquiry heard evidence that some blacklisted trade unionists faced years of unemployment after being, after being targeted by spy cops. Here's Dave Smith a blacklisted trade unionist involved in the struggle for justice, speaking to Sky News today. This report that's come out today should be the final nail in the coffin of the Metropolitan Police. Have you ever had an apology? 
We've never had an apology for what they've done. Um, but more, more and more reports, more and more public inquiries are finding the Met Police institutionally sexist, institutionally racist, institutionally corrupt, institutionally homophobic. And what this has done now is shown that anyone involved in genuine civic society, trade unions, environmental campaigns, political parties that are perfectly legal have been seen as a legitimate target in a war against their own citizens. This is an outrage, and the Met Police should be wound up for what is for what has come out of this. If you're wondering why groups like the National Front weren't being systematically infiltrated like the left were, former officers of the SDS said they were too afraid of the risk of violence to try and go undercover with them. Hmm. So you're a squad set up supposedly to address the risk of violence and public disorder from political groups, but you're not actually going to look at the most violent groups. Weirdly, this is an excuse that Sir John Mitting accepts at face value, concluding that right-wing groups weren't left alone by the SDS because of political bias. Peter Hain, a Labour peer and former anti-apartheid activist, gave the excuse short shrift. The BBC write this of his response. Lord Hain said the report revealed clear political responsibility for illegitimate undercover police operations targeting anti-apartheid and anti-racist groups going right up to the prime ministers of the day. However, he said Sir John's statement that the decision not to infiltrate right-wing groups did not stem from political bias was an astounding endorsement of the very political bias the police and security services displayed at that time. There's more to come as the inquiry examines years closer to the present day. Further reports will examine undercover police officers entering into romantic and sexual relationships by deception and the infiltration of groups campaigning for justice, such as the family of murdered teenager Stephen Lawrence. The Lawrence family was spied on by an undercover police officer masquerading as an anti-racist campaigner for four years. Going under the name Anthony Lewis, the officer reported on Neville and Doreen's struggle for justice in the name of their murdered son. Lewis also deceived a woman into a long-term relationship while under the guise of his assumed identity. Here's what Doreen Lawrence had to say about Sir John Mitting's first interim report. I now want to know who ordered the spying on me and my family. Who thought it necessary to intrude on a law-abiding family fighting for justice for their son? Who signed off on this unlawful practice? Earlier today, I spoke to Kate Wilson, a woman who was tricked into a relationship with undercover police spy Mark Kennedy. What this report shows is that these operations were unlawful, they were unjustified, and they should have been shut down back in the 1970s. It's important because it comes alongside the ruling in my case uh, just over a year ago where it was found that the operations that I was affected by between 1999 and 2010 were unlawful, unnecessary in a democratic society, unjustifiable. What that means is that we're looking at 40 years of unjustifiable political policing in the UK. And I think that this report coming now really opens up the rest of the inquiry to be 
about what the institutional failings were that allowed that to happen. Can you just talk me through what happened to you? How did you come to meet the man who turned out to be Mark Kennedy? Well, I met the man who turned out to be Mark Kennedy in 2003, but actually he was the third undercover police officer that I met. So how I came to meet the man who turned out to be Mark Kennedy is because they had kind of successions of undercover police officers in social movements over decades. Um, And one of the women from Police Buys Out of Lives, which is the group that supports women affected by these undercover relationships, these deceitful relationships with undercover officers, said when, when she read the report, she said, well, that's it. We never should have met them. They never should have been there. The units should never even have existed. So I think that's an important thing about how I came to meet Mark Kennedy is I came to meet Mark Kennedy because he was one of hundreds of undercover officers sent into political movements to spy on us. I met specifically met him at an open meeting at a community centre in Nottingham. It was brought together a variety of different campaign organisations to talk about what they were doing. It was a publicly organised meeting. He came to that meeting, made friends with people there, ended up moving into a house with friends of mine, starting a relationship with me. I eventually moved in to live with him and he progressively worked his way into our lives and our families and our political organising. But what we need to highlight about these operations is that they were not operations investigating criminal activity. They were long-term, decades-long intelligence-gathering operations on political movements. And the only time these officers went to court was not as police witnesses for the prosecution. It was as defendants in their false names. They deceived us and they deceived the courts. One of the things that's coming out of this public inquiry and that has come out of these revelations is scores of convictions being overturned because of the role that the police played in those cases. I mean, we've had cases from 50 years ago from the anti-apartheid movement being overturned because now it's coming out that one of the people, of 14 people who were arrested at the Star and Garter in 1972 was an undercover officer who took part in defendants' meetings, breached lawyer-client privilege, reported on what the lawyers were saying, and went to court in a full name without informing the CPS. Why do you think so much money, so much manpower, so many resources were poured into infiltrating groups like these? I think that there is political bias on the part of the police. I mean, it's it's clear from what we're seeing where there's over a thousand groups that were infiltrated and only three of them were on the far right. Um, And it's interesting in the report that the police have used the excuse for not infiltrating the far right, that those groups were too violent. You know, we we, we didn't want to infiltrate those groups because they, they were too violent and it would have been too dangerous. And it's like, right, so you infiltrated the groups organising cake sales and campaigning for free nurseries instead. There is a long-standing bias on the part of the police, and you can see it in all the decisions that they make when they choose to target us rather than 
targeting the companies that are breaking the law, damaging the environment. So I think that's why it happened. I think that it's about political prejudice on the part of the police. I think it's also worth noting this report that has come out makes it very clear that what was happening went right up the chain to commissioner level within the Metropolitan Police. It was working very closely with the security services in MI5 and with the Home Office. And the Home Office were repeatedly renewing funding for these operations through successive governments, through the end of the Cold War, through the introduction of the Human Rights Act. Further reports from the Mitting Inquiry will examine undercover officers conducting relationships, sexual relationships, romantic relationships with people by deception. Do you think that undercover officers insinuating themselves into the romantic and sexual lives of people that they were monitoring was a deliberate strategy to undermine political organizing? Or was it just opportunism because they weren't being closely monitored? I believe that it was a deliberate strategy. I think that's one of the things that the inquiry is going to have to look at going forwards. And I think one particularly important question is going to be how far up the chain did it go? Because, of course, if you're talking about opportunism, you're talking about individual officers taking advantage of opportunities. But what we see from my case is that it was commanding officers who were making the decisions. There are, you know, detective chief inspectors who signed off on Mark buying me gifts in order to increase the bond and the relationship that we had. So it clearly wasn't a kind of one-off opportunistic thing. Also, the fact that so many of the officers were having these relationships uh, shows that it was systemic. And I think that the reasons why this was happening go to institutional failings and problems within the culture of the Metropolitan Police. So, I mean, the Metropolitan Police has been on special measures now for months. We are seeing a lot of alarm over the institutional misogyny that exists in the police, institutional corruption, institutional racism. And those are the issues that lie behind this stuff being able to happen for so long. One of the major issues is secrecy. The Metropolitan Police are rotten to the core. We've had so many inquiries now, we don't need this one to know. We have the McPherson inquiry, we have the Daniel Morgan report, we have the Casey report. You know, the, the problems with the Metropolitan Police are well known. And the problem we have here is because all of this was going on in absolute secrecy and you have the entire hierarchy of the Metropolitan Police and the Home Office and the security services working to keep this from the public eye, it was able to go on for so long. And one of the findings in Sir John Mitting's report is that had the public been made aware of this, it would have been shut down immediately. There is no way this would have been allowed to continue. So what we need now is truth. What we need now is for people to be given their files. We need the public inquiry to stop protecting secrecy for the police because that secrecy is what has made this possible. Two years ago, the government passed the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Act, which permits the police and MI5 and other agencies to commit criminal offences in, quote, the undertaking of their duty. Does it worry you 
that the injustices of the past, many of which are only just coming to light now, aren't being learned from. They're not informing the policymaking of the present. I think it's incredibly worrying. I, I don't think it's necessarily true to say they're having little to no impact. I believe that the CHIS bill was specifically introduced to react to revelations and criticisms and preempt them. So what the CHIS bill effectively means is that if what happened to me happened today, there would be no legal redress. So the court cases that we brought and the answers, albeit still limited answers that we got, would not be possible because they would be protected. I think it's extremely worrying. I think the general tendency is extremely worrying. This report shows that the police were unlawfully interfering in people's democratic right to protest and to politically organise, not just to protest, because a lot of what they were spying on wasn't even demonstrations. You know, it was it was people's meetings. It was it was people producing political newspapers. It was it was people's ability to organise that they were targeting, not just people going out on the streets to demonstrate. What we're seeing now is that the police are being given greater and greater powers to crack down on people's political activity, uh, and I, it's very worrying, uh, particularly in the light of seeing what they do behind closed doors. We've got more for you coming up tonight. The latest centrist podcast be launched and an interesting discussion that featured Owen Jones this morning. But first, a quick break. Stay tuned and we'll be back in a second. The point of the media is to get to the facts. It's to get to the truth. That's the point. If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Our press corps is a joke. Why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard? The story in the media is already written. There is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media, that is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. You know, we've got this huge media machine which works against any kind of politics of hope. They are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access the public at large. Very many millions of people want a society in which people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, and there's very little political voice for that. Our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge. They don't like Navarra media. We're still there and there's still the embryo of a successful left populist project. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analysing, they are fucking dancing. Welcome back to Navara Live. And of course, as you just saw, you can support our work on navaramedia.com slash support. Now, on to our next story. What's the only thing that there's just too little of? It's not love, sweet love, but podcasts, sweet podcasts. And the latest former politicos to join the content churning conveyor belt, it's former Chancellor and former Shadow Chancellor George Osborne and Ed Balls. The pair have announced a yet-to-be-titled weekly podcast, which promises to bring economics back to life. The show is billed to launch this autumn and will be produced by the same production company responsible for the newsagents. Balls and Osborne have been puffing up their credentials as political opponents, or in the former Chancellor's words, as frenemies. Osborne tweeted this. 
If you told me 10 years ago I'd team up with Ed Balls, I'd never have believed you. But life is full of great surprises. This autumn, my frenemy and I will bring you a podcast that will explain how political decisions are really made and explore the big economic questions we face. Bitterest enemies turned firm friends. It's enough to warm the cockles of your heart. The show's PR blitz leans hard into the idea that these men are polar opposites. Chalk and cheese, Schwarzenegger and DeVito. They promise to reach across the political divide and show, through the power of reasoned debate and cosy banter, that politics doesn't have to be so polarizing after all. But are these men so different in the first place? Ed Balls was George Osborne's shadow cabinet counterpart in the years when Osborne was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Balls had served in government under Gordon Brown and lost his West Yorkshire seat when the Conservatives won their majority in 2015. As you may remember, Osborne's time in number 11 was defined by a brutal programme of austerity. His cuts took £37 billion out of the benefit system, causing child poverty to spiral to 4.2 million kids last year. He introduced the bedroom tax, the two-child limit benefits cap, and in 2016, he tried to force three cuts to disability payments in order to pay for a tax cut to the middle classes. One study published in the BMJ found that George Osborne's austerity policies were linked to 120,000 excess deaths in 2017. Now, you would hope that a Labour shadow chancellor between 2010 and 2015 would be putting up a principled and implacable fight against George Osborne's austerity policies. Well, not quite. It really wasn't long into the coalition government that Ed Balls began to happily parrot Tory economic ideas. This is from a 2011 Guardian report. Shadow Chancellor Ed Balls will attempt to begin restoring Labour's credibility on the economy by promising that before the next election, he will set out demanding an independently scrutinised fiscal rules for cutting the deficit. He will also tell his party conference in Liverpool that if there is any windfall from the sale of state-owned bank shares such as RBS, the cash will be used exclusively to pay down the deficit and not boost state spending. Adopting a more hawkish stance on the economy, Balls will say, we will never have credibility unless we have the discipline and the strength to take tough decisions. So instead of using money from nationalized assets to invest in education, hospitals, transport or welfare, Ed Balls adopted the Conservatives' totally arbitrary line on deficit reduction. When it came to borrowing to invest during an era of historically low interest rates, Shadow Chancellor Ed Balls and Chancellor of the Exchequer George Osborne were of one mind. Here's a new statesman piece from 2014. Balls binds Labour to austerity with promise of no extra borrowing. George Eaton goes on to explain Ed Balls's screeching U-turn. Having pledged to eliminate the current account deficit rather than the total deficit, in contrast to George Osborne, Balls had left himself with room to borrow for capital spending, such as housing, roads and other infrastructure projects. But as a spokesman for the Shadow Chancellor confirmed to me after the speech, he has now ruled out this option. We will not make proposals in the manifesto for extra capital spending paid for by borrowing, I was told. 
Policy commitments, such as the pledge to build 200,000 houses a year by 2020, will be delivered by prioritising housing investment within the existing capital settlement for the next parliament. Having rejected the option of extra borrowing, Labour will now need to meet all its promises through tax rises or spending cuts elsewhere. Austerity really is here to stay. And in case you were hoping that Ed Balls was at least going to promise that a Labour government would repair the damage wreaked by the Conservative coalition's austerity measures, tough luck. This headline shows his response to the Tory budget in 2015. Ed Balls admits Labour would not reverse George Osborne's flagship measures. The Telegraph article says this. Speaking in response to yesterday's budget, he said nothing had changed because the Chancellor had produced a quite empty budget, meaning Labour wouldn't need to reverse any of it if the party was successful at the general election. There's nothing I need to reverse. What I will reverse are deeper spending cuts in the next three years than the, ne- than the last five. So, This idea that Ed Balls and George Osborne are ideological opponents is total fraff. They were political rivals for power, but what they wanted to do with that power was broadly the same. They're two individuals who may as well be the poster children for disenchanted voters shrugging their shoulders because all politicians are the same. George Osborne and Ed Balls occupy places on the political spectrum that aren't even in different postcodes. They're inches apart. So this podcast isn't so much the odd couple as it is the Olsen twins. They're two sides of the same economic orthodoxy, two cheeks of the same austerity happy ass. So why are they doing it? Well, it's quite simple. They want to restore their tattered reputations so that they can wield political influence again. And look, I hate to say I told you so, That's a lie. I love to say I told you so. But this is what I had to say last month about the best way for ex-politicians to launder their reputations. Start a podcast. Everybody loves a parasocial relationship. And there's nothing like the easy familiarity of podcasting to cultivate a cuddly, avuncular persona, chuckling away any inconvenient suggestions of accountability. Alistair Campbell is the MVP of British political reputation laundering. His reinvention as a thoughtful grandee of sensible politics, honesty and integrity is up there with Henry Kissinger's Nobel Peace Prize in terms of grotesque irony. Here's the man who captained Tony Blair's spin machine in making the case for the invasion of Iraq, including pushing the falsehood that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction capable of reaching the UK in 45 minutes. And more than anyone else in the UK, he's credited with the invention of spin, the shaping of the news agenda to better suit your own political objectives at the expense of, I don't know, stupid shit, like telling the unvarnished truth in the public interest. Eventually, your political rehabilitation will be so complete that you can start a podcast opining on all things political without having to reflect on your own role in causing the very problems you describe. Because hey, why should a few dead Iraqis get in the way of a highly successful media career? You can see why George Osborne and Ed Balls, whose names are synonymous with austerity and Labour's decline in the Red Wall respectively, would be keen to reinvent themselves as centrist grandees. It means people focus less on your many, many failures and instead begin to think of you as a glowing exemplar of a more decent age. 
This appeals primarily to an audience that didn't really get affected by austerity or rent increases or student debt, but really hated Brexit because it offended their sense of who should make political decisions. And I'm not talking about all Remainers here. I'm talking about the people who thought that staying in the EU was more important than tackling economic injustice. What podcasts like this also do is narrow the range of acceptable political opinion. So the debate isn't between the left and the right anymore, it's between the so-called centre and the right. It closes the door on political and economic change. No need to worry about socialism anymore, lads. It's back to the two flavours of corporate social responsibility. That sound you hear? It's the Overton window slamming shut. It also helps that there's big money to be made in the centrist dad market, as The Guardian's Jim Waterson points out by writing this. New podcasts with large, loyal audiences are highly attractive to advertisers, giving access to a wealthy audience who are increasingly hard to reach through other means, and are happy to buy tickets for live recordings and spin-off merchandise. As hosts of their own podcast, Balls and Osborne will expect to receive a large cut of any advertising revenue the show produces. Nice work if you can get it. So Sean, do you think that the centrist dad market can comfortably absorb a knockoff of the rest of politics or are they oversaturated? <laughs> I mean, that is hard to predict. It depends how much of a continued appetite there is. I'd say one thing about the rest is politics is that I think reviews tended to agree that it did best. Um, when the two men speak personally, because there is some fascination, perhaps it's the thick of it factor with Alistair Campbell and uh, Rory Stewart has always been considered kind of uh, classic sort of right wing Tory eccentric. Um, I don't know that necessarily these two participants have the charm, but I think what's what sort of strikes me is uh yeah, is about why there is such an appetite. And I think it's an extension of how we consider political commentary in this country due to the media. I think it's worth saying that there's certain aspects, and I'm aware that you and I are doing political commentary right now, where it's a rather cosy affair and people don't actually want to be challenged because it's light entertainment. A lot of mainstream broadcasting treats politics, particularly parliamentary politics, And I think there's also a sense of creating, you know, with a podcast, a self-regarding community who feel like they are very intelligent and they are uh, listening to a a discussion that is in no way threatening um, to their perhaps core political beliefs, um, but certainly is there to slightly affirm their sense of being part of a club. And there's a sort of register to that. I don't think it's always... um, podcasts, I would say, for example, the popularity of Marina Hyde's columns, for example, is that this tends to be political commentary, where the focus is on affirming the sense of intelligence that you understand the references or jokes uh, in the commentary itself, rather than, and and there will be this sort of use words like searing used, when in fact, it's not that searing at all. And actually, it it comes across to anyone perhaps on the left as quite... um, I don't know, soft serve. The other thing I was going to say is, and you touched on this, is that this is also um, does contribute, I think, in this country to reframing what we even think of as left wing. Um, Another example would be the new statesman released its left power list, as I know you're aware, Ash. And, um, you know, on it, the names gracing it were uh, Keir Starmer, Wes Streeting, J.K. Rowling. Um, And I think to anyone... uh, 
on the left, that was somewhat baffling. But I think it's about, again, uh, as you say, the Overton window about where the centre of, of gravity is in our political discourse, at least that allowed by popular media and funded in expensive, shiny new podcasts. Is there also an element of the death of shame? Because I thought this when Amber Rudd started doing a podcast with her daughter, Flora Gill, and I think this about Alistair Campbell doing a podcast, and I definitely think this about George Osborne, which is, if I used my time in power to corrode public life so disastrously, to pick on vulnerable people so mercilessly, I would be afraid of leaving my house for fear of being pelted with rotten fruit, let alone going on a podcast to be like, aren't I someone worth listening to? Like, is there something which is like self-comforting about this? By doing this, they can trick themselves into believing that they've been good people in public life. I don't think there has actually been a death of shame. I think what if you look institutionally, what we have done is we have always given former politicians, you know, access to the unelected House of Lords. We've given them titles. We've given them imperial honours. There is a sort of like establishment belief that you, just by having occupied a role of power and they believe it's public service, regardless of what you've done in that role, that you're entitled to some kind of benefit on leaving and some kind of um, deference and respect. And I think this is just a modern iteration of it. They're not, they're not just happy to settle for like, you know, Baroness or, um, or Lord anymore. Um, they, they also want, I don't know, to be popular, to be, um, a figure in, in light entertainment. I mean, famously the adage that <laughs> politics is show business for ugly people. I feel, I feel like that for some politicians, you know, Ed Balls did strictly come dancing. And by the way, I'm not calling Ed Balls ugly. I, um, <laughs> I, I think that, that some politicians very much enjoy the idea that in retirement, they get to assume this position of almost reclining and getting to, um, to, to participate in, in entertainment with the kind of authority that comes from having occupied a ministerial role full stop, regardless of what they've done. And I think, again, that's a failure of of our political culture and media culture to hold people to account. So, no, I don't think it's the death of shame. I think it's uh, a continuation of shamelessness, but just in a modern iteration. I mean, I think you're totally right about that avuncular persona, right? You half expect them to, like, get out a, you know, little packet of Werther's originals and tell you about the time they took half a pill at university. Let's move on to our final story. Owen Jones has been on Good Morning Britain telling some hard truths about Britain's failing water industry. The more you think about it, the more you think, what are they thinking when they flogged it off in the late 90s, 80s? I think Thatcher was high on her own dogma at the time. You know, we were told it'd be good for customers. Bills have gone up by, in real terms by 40% since they were flogged off. Uh, we were told it'd be good for efficiency, but actually all they did is rack up a massive debt pile. That's the problem. £52 billion worth of debt the, the whole industry <coughs> brought together. What have they done with that money? Paid off in dividends, over £70 billion worth. And of course, because they're interested in dividends, they're not interested in things like fixing the pipes, which is why we end up with huge amounts of sewage um, in the water. England's the only country on earth that flogged off, privatised the entire industry. And if you compare it to Scotland, um, where they've invested far more in the industry because it's publicly owned. So we can see a comparison, you just have to look north of the border. I think the sensible thing now, to be honest, is just to go, this was an embarrassing mistake. It's a natural monopoly. You don't get competition. We can't have an industry run by fat cats, you know, on average earning £1.7 million a year. 
Let's just accept it's failed. Thames Water is the first to go. The others are looking just pretty dubious. Take the whole on, thing, bring on it On the question the of Scottish water, which is, as you say, is, is still isn't uh, privately owned, um, they still have a serious amount of debt, don't they? They've got billions of pounds worth of debt. I and mean, also the pipes in Scotland leak 9% more water on average. 10.5% litres of water per mile of po uh, pipes were lost in Scotland every minute, as opposed to 97 in England and Wales. So there's still issues. There's still, still issues, issues north of the border. So, yeah. I mean, Bills it's, are higher. It, I mean, it's, 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 they've got it's very expansive Scotland. That's part of the problem. But they've invested 35% more um, mm. uh, than, than the English have. And actually, the bills are lower. I mean, they pay less in bills. It's not a magic wand. You don't bring it into public ownership and, hey, presto, you've, you've sorted the industry out. If you look at hours, leaking, sewerage, very, very high bills for what you're paying. And, you know, the idea of competition, because that was the idea, you'll mm. have competition. Do people, are people shopping around, competing? No. Uh, in, I mean, what do you think? Quentin, I mean, just what do you think, We're presenting this programme as well. Just generally interesting. <laughs> I mean, I was really impressed by Owen there because, you know, number one, he seems to have Benjamin Button's disease. He's aging backwards. And secondly, I think that he made the case really convincingly, which is privatisation of the water industry has failed by every one of its own metrics. It's not more efficient. It's not a better deal for customers. And it's not even a competition. It's not as if I can go, oh, I'm getting a really bad service from Thames Water. I guess I'm just going to stop needing water to live. You know, it's not as if I can then go, well, let me then look at all of the other water regions. You know, how's Anglian water doing? How's Southeastern? How's Southern? That's not how it works. We're basically a totally captive market. It's the same with the train industry. Um, it's, you know, very often the same when you think about the levels of, you know, I'm not allowed to call it price fixing because it's not technically price fixing, but price alignment when it comes to infrastructure like broadband, there's not meaningful competition. As a consumer, you don't have meaningful choice. And that means that we can be gouged for every penny that we're worth. Owen was on the show with Quentin Letts. He's a Times journalist who used to work for The Telegraph and The Mail. So, pretty bright wing. Let's see what he makes of the Thames water row. It might be that it's forced upon us, <laughs> but has uh, privatisation been a, a failure? And what would yes. the cost be to renationalise? Palpably. Um, yeah. And I don't think water should have been privatised because there's only one set of pipes. Um, yeah. uh, and it's therefore a bit ridiculous to try to introduce competition on that. But uh, not only have you had uh, bungling capitalism on this, you've also had pretty pathetic uh, regulation. Mm. And funnily enough, the, I mean, well, not funny, but I mean, regrettably, the people who really were responsible for this were the previous owners, who were outrageous uh, uh, Australian company, who just milked uh, the water company, if you can milk a water company, uh, <laughs> terribly. And uh, the people who are now going to take a bath, there's another water analogy for you, uh, are the uh, current owners who are going to uh, lose most of their money. Mm. And that's the way that capitalism works. Uh, the, the, the state will, will take over and then hopefully will make a profit uh, when it sells it to so the would you not? Would you, I mean, obviously, that, that seems that's the way it's going to go, although they, in terms of what you're saying, they're going back to their shareholders and trying to sort of add to the 500 million that they've raised already to add to that. Would you like to see Thames Water get renationalized? I couldn't really care less who owns the water. Um, it's just as long as the, when you turn on the tap, something reasonably clean comes out. That was, I think that's all but anyone wants. I think that's so revealing about where the conservative right are at the moment. So Quentin Letts, 
joins Owen Jones, I mean, what a coalition that is, in a pretty excoriating account of what's gone on with the water companies. They shouldn't have been privatized. They've been asset stripped. And, you know, water is a natural monopoly anyway, so it shouldn't have been privatized. And then it goes, oh, well, I don't really care who owns the water. I don't really care who owns the water, just as long as something good comes out. Um, What a funny retreat from the logical conclusions of his own argument. Um, But Sean, is Quentin Letts right that it doesn't matter who owns the water company so long as something clear and clean comes out of the taps? (laughs) No, it's not. But um, I I just wanted to say as well, I agree with you about Owen, especially as I saw on Instagram that Owen was at the club just before (laughs) that GMB appearance. So uh, yet again, Owen's energy levels um, never fail to amaze me. Why does it matter? Well, I think it matters on principle, too, about um, the fact that, you know, Owen mentioned there that the the dividends paid of over 70 billion since privatization of of the water. And um, and that and that's significant because that means that there are people, individuals who are significantly enriching themselves over, you know, access to control of this resource water that we all need. And um, it's not even, you know, good full privatization when it's something like water, because if anything goes wrong, ultimately it does have to be fixed because we all rely on it. And it means that that not only do they enrich themselves, they're also able to make us pay, one, to get the government to assist them, and two, to get us, the consumer, to pay for their mistakes and their mismanagement. So it's not even like, you know, the true pure capitalist principle that it's like if it's mismanaged, the the business will fail and uh, it should be allowed to fail. It's survival of the fittest. It's like, no, you still walk away with your dividend and then we're left picking up the pieces. And who wants that? So, yeah, an astonishing retreat. But, of course, completely expected because... um, it's in these shareholders and you know senior executives interests that the Tories will always act. I mean I think this is one of the things which winds me up so much about the case for privatization of anything, which is every pound that goes to shareholders and dividends is a pound that could have been put in investment, so in making the infrastructure better or improving people's wages or delivering new services, it's always a waste of money to give it to the shareholders, in my opinion. That's my most normie opinion. Um, For more normie opinions, please tune in to Navarra Live tomorrow night, same time, 6pm. And thank you, Sean, for joining me this evening. No, thank you for having me, Ash. It was like 2016, the old days of Navarra. Yes, and like 2016 old days of Navarra, I am sweating out about 70% of my body's water. Thank you for watching me dehydrate myself. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.